Dr. Stan May, and you're listening to Drawing from the Well, a weekly podcast by Chronological Bible Teaching Ministries. I'm Jonathan Doolin, here again with Dr. Stan May to explore some of the discovery questions from Tyndale's one-year Chronological Study Bible. We have finished the creation era, we finished the patriarchs era, and now we're well into the Exodus era. The first question for today um, deals with the Passover. What are the requirements of the Passover lamb, and how does the Passover event shape the nation of Israel? The Passover event becomes, for Israel, a defining point. In fact, when the Lord commands it to Moses, this will be the beginning of months to you. Israel now marks its calendar by Passover. Not a surprise that later the Passover is the the calendar changes to to reflect uh, the Christ. Uh, but Israel marks its its uh, its calendar by Passover, and Israel is forever reminded by this annual ceremony. They're reminded of their redemption by blood, and they're reminded as a teaching tool for their children. One of the requirements in the passage is is that it will come to pass in time your children will say, what do these things mean? And the Israelites are to use them to train them. The main teaching is that God requires a lamb that is spotless, that is set aside, that is inspected, and then that is slain so that the children of Israel can have the blood on the doorpost. And the blood on the doorpost says Death has already come to this house, thus allowing the death angel to pass over. This glorious picture shows Israel's deliverance by blood and how significant that is. This, again, reaffirms the story that we see in Genesis 3, that apart from the shedding of the blood of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, there's no protection. On February 5th, we see this question, why and how? Does God lead them, the people of Israel, on the longer route? What does this journey teach Israel about God's power and his ways? The shorter route would have been to go straight across and right up almost alongside of the Mediterranean, but it would have put them immediately in contact with the Philistine peoples. Israel was a nation of slaves, not warriors. The Egyptians had stripped them of their Uh, Any weapons they might have owned, they made them into slaves, forced them into bitter servitude. They were in no way ready for battle. Now, while God could deliver them, God's real purpose was to transition them, to fashion them from slaves to soldiers. Unfortunately, this process, as we know, took two generations because they were so unwilling to make that transition. But God was taking them this way to protect them, but also to show his power and his glory. The, the, the Red Sea story is God's way of demonstrating his power that is, is de- demonstrating his power and showing that Israel is saved not just by blood, but by power, that the parting of the Red Sea is God's mighty demonstration that he can bring his people across on dry land and destroy their pursuers by that same mechanism by which he delivered them. After the Exodus event, the next major feature, Um, in the Exodus era, is that God gives the law to his people. Um, How do the Ten Commandments express God's overarching standards of morality, and how how does he tie them to creation itself? 
Well, the law rep, the law reflects the, all the law that God gives to Moses in the in the in the Decalogue and throughout the Exodus era in the four books of the Exodus era, uh, Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of them demonstrate aspects of God's law. They some are ceremonial. How does how do sinful people approach a holy God? Some are social. How do redeemed sinners live together in harmony? and honor God in their relations with one another, especially as they use the word transgress, but in the sense of cross each other's boundary lines. How do, how do we deal with those? And God gives very clear instructions there. But the, the Ten Commandments, the moral heart of the law, it has no parallel, for example, in the Gilgamesh epic or any of the, the laws of uh, Hammurabi, anything like that. There's nothing close to that. Because these reflect the very moral heart of God. They tie to the creation era uh, in, in, Exodus, in, in Genesis 9. For example, Moses is, I mean, Noah is commanded that if, they, if a life is killed, that they're to uh, be repaid by the taking of a life. Because in the image of God, man is made. And the, in the commandment about the Sabbath, we are reminded that in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested, and therefore he commands a rest on the Sabbath day. When he begins the Decalogue, he reminds them that he is the Lord who first created them and then brought them out of Egypt, that he's their creator and their redeemer. And therefore, on all these bases, they owe their allegiance and obedience to him as their Lord. Amen. Um, the reading on February 9, um, we have this question, who initiates this offering that's featured in the reading, and to whom is it given, and what is the offering's purpose? Who is to give, and what does this tell you about the hearts of givers? This question is so fascinating to me. This passage excites my heart because it teaches us that God is a giver and that God's people, when they rightly relate to him, give. The offering's direction, God initiates the offering. Moses doesn't initiate it. God says, command the children of Israel, tell them to bring me their sacred offerings. Offerings are given to God. He also says in this passage, accept those whose, whose hearts are moved to give them. And so God loves a cheerful giver, those who give from the heart. That's the real passion of a giver. It's not out of sheer obedience. It's not out of uh, obligation. It's not out of poor God is in need because everything that they're able to give out of this offering, everything that he describes is what they plundered from Egypt, which means God gave it to them in the very first place so they could have a portion to give back to him for his glory. And then he finishes off this amazing story by saying, telling Moses, he says, and when you when you finish, have them build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them and you must build its tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern that I showed you. Here's what God's doing. God is allowing Israel to build a tabernacle that will be a piece of heaven on earth because it's, this, it's the replica of what Moses sees on the mountain. And Moses sees the original. And the replica on earth is a piece of heaven on earth and a place where a holy God will dwell among his people. And they get to give to see God do what only God can do to dwell among his people. Amen.
while Moses is on the mountain, we have this really strange story where the people ask Aaron, Moses' brother, um, to, to make for them an idol, make for them a god. And he makes a, a calf out of gold. And this moves God to anger. And so we have this question, how does Moses pray when God says he will destroy Israel and make a great nation for Moses? When this situation occurs, God says to Moses, go down. Your people have been rebellious. I'm going to destroy him. Leave me alone. This is not so much a statement of God's intention as it is an invitation for, for Moses' intercession, that God is allowing Moses to be a part of what he's doing. Moses' intercession frames much of the rest of the narrative of Israel's history because when you go to the Psalms, it said, had not Moses stood in the breach? And the picture of standing in the breach occurs all the way to the New Testament until the final one who stands in the breach for us, that is Jesus. But Moses prays, and he prays this. He prays on the basis of God's reputation. Lord, what are they going to say? What will the Egyptians say when you can't bring your people in? He prays on the basis of God's um, revelation of himself that these are your people and that there's a relationship between God and these people. They're not Moses' people. They're God's people. And so Moses learns to pray effectively because he prays on the basis of what God has revealed about himself and what God has revealed about his relationship with his people. And he prays in that way, and he reminds the Lord of the covenant. Now, we know that we don't actually remind God of anything. The God who never forgets doesn't need reminding. But good prayers take hold of God's word and God's promises bring them back to the Lord, and Moses in that way seeks the Lord. And when, when God shows himself then, God demonstrates his power to his people, and he reveals how glorious he is by forgiving their sin, even though there is judgment. And it's a lesson contemporary believers would do well to remember that God does forgive, but there are consequences for sin. Thank you, Doctor. Thanks for joining us. Listen in each week with CBT as we draw from the well of the Word to answer questions from the weekly reading of the One Year Chronological Study Bible.